All right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Who's happy to be here today? Just one? All right. All right. Well, welcome to South Coast Community Church, and welcome if you're watching at home. We're glad that you've tuned in, and uh, we pray that you're blessed. Uh, my name's Jamie. I'm the associate pastor here, and I just have a, a few quick announcements for you, and then uh, we can get started. So, um, we do have a bulletin that we post on Facebook every Sunday morning prior to the service. So if you wanted to pull up that bulletin and, and uh, you know, kind of get updated on what's going on here as well as informed about the service, all you have to do is go there and it will be uploaded and you can, you can uh, view it. Now if you prefer to have it emailed to you, we'll also do that for you, but only upon request. We don't, we don't want to just inundate everybody's email boxes. So um, if you do want that emailed, uh, remember this email because this email is really important. It's Kathy at sccc.org. Kathy with a C, A T H Y at sccc. That's three C's. dot org. Um, she is the person that you want to email basically about all the the, the doings and, and things that are going on here at the church. So um, we also ask that if you want to attend the Sunday service here in person, we are capped. We do have a limit. So uh, because of that, we're asking that you reserve your spot ahead of time. And uh, in order to do that, you want to email Kathy as well at secc.org. And you want to do that by Thursday. Uh, Thursdays are cut off. And the reason for that is, is because we have to do a seating plan for social distancing. So that way we can have family groups together and things of that nature. So it just it helps us to organize and to know by the end of the week how many people are coming and um, obviously those who are trying to reserve uh, what our cutoff is. And unfortunately, we've had to tell people, I'm sorry, we're at our limit. And so, you know, um, that's, a, that's a good problem, but it's a problem. And so we want to make sure that everybody understands that, that cutoff. Um, also, Sunday Funday, we just want to explain, like, what's going on this year. Obviously, because a lot of these places that we would normally celebrate or have this event at are closed and they're unavailable to us. Um, so what we're doing is, is we're having multiple events on that Sunday, and they're hosted at various people's houses and in various towns in the area to try to make it as convenient as possible, and we're doing these smaller groups and 10 to 12 people, um, and that way we can practice social distancing and all that stuff, but we're going to watch the live stream of the service there at these houses and then have the event there um, together uh, with that smaller group. It's, a, it's, it's actually, uh, it's a change, um, and I won't say it's unfortunate. I mean, I love to get the larger group together, but it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to, for us to grow in these smaller groups and conversation and get to know each other better, um, and we are capping them. So what, I, what we're asking is, is for people to sign up. There will be no service here at the church that day. So what you want to do, I mean, you can still watch at home by yourself if you'd like online, but... If, if you really want to get together and you'd like to worship and obviously have a fun day, as we've coined it, we, I think Gary said it's the Sunday, eh, right, jokingly, because no one signed up yet. So we got to get you guys to sign up, all right? And Kathy's yelling at me as usual. What do you need, Kathy? And it's also potluck, which is super important that we know at this point in time. So that way the host will know what's coming. But first, let's get people signed up. Please get involved. It's awesome. I know Stacy and I are hosting one and the Englands and things like that. So it's really great opportunity for people to get together. Um, at this time, I'm just going to pray 
Um, if there's anything that you want to get involved with here at the church, if you want to serve more, if you want to get more involved or be more aware of what's happening, or just put yourself out there and say, hey, use me. If there's anything coming up, here's what I can do. Here's what I'm willing to do. Email Kathy. Um, she obviously will be the communication between uh, the rest of the leadership team. And there's always needs that come up. Uh, it's, it's unique right now. It's not typically needs in the church. And I think this is actually a good thing. We're starting to see, like, what the church should be outside of these four walls and outside of just the Sunday service. We're starting to see other needs start to arise. And so it gives us opportunity to get you guys connected to other members in the church or other parts of the community where you can be used. So if you really want to get more involved, I know a lot of us know that we should be or could be or might even want to be, but you're not sure where or how, email Kathy and just say, look, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know where I'd fit in, but I'm willing and she's going to try to at least get you on a list so that way we can start to figure it out when things do pop up, okay? We'd love to see you all more involved, though. So at this time, I'm just going to pray for the service before I invite Pastor Brian up. So, Father God, we just come before you, Lord, grateful. Grateful that we are here today together or even online able to watch this service and to be connected somehow to the rest of the body. Lord, I pray that those who have maybe never visited South Coast Community Church and are just peeking in online... Father, that they would hear something today, God, that would change their lives forever, like many of us have. Father, that you would use the music and the word and all of that, all of that we present here today, God, to really minister to them and reach them where they're at. And Father, I lift up every person who's here and watching, Lord, that you would prepare their hearts and their minds to receive what it is they're about to see and hear this morning. Father, that it wouldn't just be another Sunday ritual, God, but, Father, that this would be a moment of connection with you and the body. Lord, that something miraculous would happen. We're trusting you with that today. God, apart from you, we can do nothing, but in Christ and through Christ and with Christ, God, amazing things can happen, and they do all the time. Let us not discount that. There's a lot of ugly things going on in the world right now, and a lot of us get baited in or sucked into some of these things and we forget that we're called to be ministers of reconciliation, messengers of the truth, ambassadors for Jesus before any other social or political position or perspective or issue. Let us be that first. Reach us, convict us, grow us and change us so that we can be more effective instruments in your mighty hand. So, Lord, have your way in this service. Have your way with our worship team and our pastor. I pray that they just give it all to you today, Lord, so that we may receive the fullness of your truth, your love, and your grace. In Jesus' name. I well, good morning, everyone. I wanted to... Uh, it's a little bit longer of an introduction, but I wanted to introduce... Uh, part two of the, the series we've been working on before the worship, because I was thinking and praying at the beginning of the week about the sermon. I began to think of, of this question. I began to think of the question, you know, what is it that I want people to, to walk away with? What truth of God do I want to be applicable? What is, what is the goal, ultimately, of what, I, of what I'm trying to convey? What is it I want people to truly, deeply understand? What what life-changing truth, what life-changing principle of God's revealed truth that I want, do I want people to apply? Now, of course, to some degree, this is always the point of preaching and teaching, right? I mean, I don't, 
you know, I, I don't prepare a sermon without sort of asking that question, but I felt like, you know, when, when I asked the question in prayer, I felt like when I answered it, and, I, and I, my answer was, well, I, I want him to, to know Jesus. You know, I, I want people to have a deeper relationship with Jesus, which is always the right answer, right? I mean, there's no other answer, but I felt like God kind of slowed me down. And I felt like he said, no, I want you to kind of just, just sit with this question. What's the deep truth that you're trying to convey? And it, it seems funny to me, but sometimes God will slow us down. And so sort of the, the typical response or the, or the, you know, well, I just want him to fall deeper in love with Jesus. God, you know, kind of slowed me down. And so anyways, he brought me to this place of stillness. And I felt like he was specifically asking me to answer the question, to go deeper with that question. He was drawing me in. And so I sat with the question and I went about my week. And in fact, it was not a good week. In fact, it was a very, very difficult week. I had one of those weeks where you're so sad and so broken that you want to cry, that you're so tired and frustrated you want to give up and withdraw. Just in case you don't know, pastors have those sort of weeks too, right? One of the hottest things about ministry, and by ministry I simply mean loving people enough to be involved in their life, one of the hardest parts about that is that their burdens become your burdens. Their grief, your grief. Their mourning, your mourning. I mean, that's what the Bible says. Mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. In other words, have relationships that are significant enough that what affects the people you care about deeply affects you. It's an invitation to real relationship, not just superficial surface acquaintances. And so I was deeply troubled. And I was in a place where I was forced down on my knees in prayer. And I say forced because you know our tendency is to do everything on our own. And the more experience you have with the Lord and the more knowledge, you know, you kind of rely on what you know. And, you know, maybe you know the scriptures to go to, or you know you got to pray, or you know the right Christian friends to call, but you still rely on, on the religious pieces of Christianity, on, on the Word of God, which obviously is, is supposed to be relied upon, and sometimes you neglect the very presence of God Himself. We use our talent and our ability and our knowledge. But then if we're lucky, we exhaust those things very quickly. I'm reminded by a quote by the Greek playwright Aeschylus who lived about 500 years before Jesus. And he said this, He who learns must suffer. And even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair... And against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. I love that phrase, the awful grace of God. People continue to disagree on what Aeschylus meant. Some say awful in the sense of being filled with awe. Others say he meant awful in a negative context. But I tend to think that he was simply trying to suggest that it's beyond our comprehension. Awful and grace, two things that seemingly don't go together. We don't understand how something bad can lead to something so good. We don't understand how suffering, when we're in the midst of it, can actually become valuable. And so I was weary and I was tired and I was at the end of myself. And I prayed to the Lord and I said, Lord, I'm going to trust you. 
because I realized that I was so completely unequipped and unable and incapable to change the situation or to change the people in the situation. And so I had little to do but surrender to him. And so in my prayers, I said, I trust you, Lord. I trust you, Lord. And right away, he, he stopped me again, you know, in my spirit. And he said, but do you? Do, do you really? I know that you say that, and I know that you're even, you, you, you know, your intentions are good, but do you know what that means? Do you understand when, when you say, I trust you, Lord, do you understand what that's supposed to convey? You see, I was celebrating my mature spiritual surrender when I said, I trust you, Lord. And when I heard that still small voice, he was not congratulating me for that spiritual surrender. Instead, he was saying, have you really surrendered at all? He was asking me the same question that Peter was so quick to answer when Jesus said, do you love me? And Peter said, of course I do. And Jesus said, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Peter. I mean, do you really? Do you really love me? And so I understood in that moment, like all things in our lives, that God was drawing me to a deeper place. And so I said, Lord, I trust you. I love you. I trust you. My hope is in you alone, nowhere else and with no one else. And I felt like at that moment that he impressed upon my heart, that's the reason for your message. That's the reason for your message because I want people to come to know me and love me and trust me in that kind of a way. It's completely, but it's imperfect and it's anxious and it's uncertain about outcomes, but complete trust is what Jesus is asking for. I feel like he was saying, I, just don't, I don't just want obedience, I want your heart. I want their hearts. And so, of course, I wept. And I was so grateful that once again, life's circumstances brought me to the end of me. You see, I was reminded of the great value to suffering when it brings us broken to the feet of Jesus. And I was no longer worried or anxious. I was just grateful. I was immensely grateful for my tough week because it wasn't a bad week anymore. It was a tough week. It was a week, week so tough that I needed the Lord, but I was overwhelmed with gratitude to a God who is forever present with us, forever patient with us, and forever faithful to us. And so my hope and my prayer as we continue to go through these Beatitudes and the worship team can come up. My hope is that we would come to know Him in an ever-increasing measure. That it won't be our last instinct to drop to our knees in prayer and surrender it all to Him, but it will be our first instinct. You know, sometimes I think our, our abilities, our, our knowledge, our skills, our experience can be the greatest liabilities that we have if those are the things we rely on except for the Lord. And so, as we stand and transition to worship, I just want to pray. Lord, you know specifically the hurts and the struggles 
the grief and the pain, the difficulties in this room right now. And sometimes you remove those things, sometimes you change circumstances, but sometimes you don't. Lord, oftentimes our pain, our difficulty is the very thing you use to draw us into a deeper relationship with you, a deeper understanding of the depth of your love. And so my prayer, Lord, is that each of us would come to know you with an increasing love and trust and just reliability. Father, right now, have your way in this place. Holy Spirit, fill us, Lord. Bring us to a place of, of heart surrender. Bring us to a place of, of softened hearts, of, of openness to allow your word and spirit to penetrate our hearts and our lives. Lord, we can't change so much, but you can change anything. And so more importantly, change us. Be present with us. Help us to feel your overwhelming strength and peace and joy in the midst of whatever it is we're going through. Because these Beatitudes, Lord, this, this invitation for us to be salt and light can only happen if we're able to internalize these postures of our heart. So have your way now. As we worship you, Lord, help us to be present. Help us to be especially open to your presence in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lord Jesus, you are here in our midst. God, you know specifically the struggles, the difficulties, the trials, the anxieties, the worries, all those things, God. And yet you stand here in the midst of us and you say, peace be with you. Not a peace as the world gives, not a peace that's based on circumstance or situation, but a peace that comes from having you inside of us, God, from having a relationship with a risen Savior, a peace that surpasses understanding. It doesn't make sense in our mind, but it makes all the sense in the world in our heart. Father, may we know this peace. And may it transform us and help us to transform others to walk with those who are in the midst of great difficulty, God. You are so faithful. You are so good. Have your way here in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Usually at least I get preaching before I start crying, so that's a good start there. Thank you, worship team. Well, last week we began looking at Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 11. And it's, it's been described as, as the manifesto 
of the kingdom. And a manifesto just means a public decoration of, of, of aims, of, of policies and goals. That would be a manifesto. It would be a public declaration of policies and goals. What are, the, what are the ways that we achieve what we want to achieve? And so this has been described as Jesus' manifesto of his kingdom. The policies, the way we ought to behave, the goals or the aims of Jesus' teaching. He is unveiling to us the foundations and character of life in His kingdom. And so the qualities give us a clear picture of the character that should be being formed in the true people of God. Known as the Beatitudes, they come at the beginning of the longest continuous discourse of Jesus found in the New Testament, known as the Sermon on the Mount. They are an invitation to true blessings, to godly heart formation. And they are attitudes and postures that aren't optional, but are necessary for kingdom living. I submit to you that if we don't understand these things, we miss, we miss everything. Foundational means that which all else is built upon. If the foundation is not properly understood, if the foundation is not solid, if the foundation cannot be built upon, if it's shaky, then nothing else will matter. Nothing else can, can go forward. That's why even these Beatitudes themselves, who, which are preparation for the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes build on one another. And so we know that the crowds often turned away when they found out what following Jesus meant. And we say that still today there are those who think being a Christian is more about what we know and what we think or what we believe in our minds than it is about a life-giving relationship with Jesus. Yes, it's important that we understand the Bible. Knowledge is key to know about the character of God. But the reason we want to know about the character of God is to be in a relationship with Him. It's not just so we are good at Bible trivia or we can recite facts or even in the midst of difficulty where we know what Scripture to go to. I mean, God gives us His Word. It's, it is to comfort us. But it's not a substitute for His presence. It should bring us into His presence. There's a point where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says, you see the, the Word of God, but you don't see me through that. You know, you, you have the, the text, but you don't, you don't see the full revelation standing in front of you. You know, when he's before Pilate, and Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? Truth himself, the embodiment of truth, objective truth, is standing in front of him, and Pilate asks the question, what is truth? J.I. Packer, I think best described as a great servant theologian. He died Friday, he was 93 years old. He was a man with a very sharp intellect, but more importantly, he was a man with a true desire for communion with God. And he said this. He said, when Christians meet, they talk to each other about their Christian work and their Christian interests and their Christian acquaintances. They talk about the state of their churches and the problems of theology, but rarely do they discuss their daily experience of God. Modern Christian books and magazines contain much about Christian doctrine, Christian standards, the problems of Christian conduct, techniques of Christian service, but little about the inner realities of fellowship with God. Our sermons contain much sound doctrine, but little relating to the converse between the soul and the Savior. 
We do not spend much time alone or together in dwelling on the wonder of the fact that God and sinners have communion at all. No, we just take that for granted and we give our minds to other matters. Thus we make it plain that communion with God is a small thing to us. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. The thought of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayer and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. We've taken secondary things that are important, but we've made them primary. The Pharisees had the correct knowledge. Knowledge wasn't their problem. They had hearts that were still hardened, that had not been softened by the presence of God. And I think this sentiment by Packer is a wonderful illustration of what Jesus was teaching in the Beatitudes. Jesus is saying, if we are to be salt and light, it matters most not simply what we know in our head, but what we know in our heart. It is our love for God that should be the source of our actions. The core of Christianity is fellowship, intimate fellowship, intimate, increasing fellowship with the risen Christ. And so these heart values are the foundation on which the rest of Jesus' teaching is built. We said last week that the Beatitudes are not difficult to understand. They are difficult to live. And so we're going to read again in Matthew 5. It says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You know, it doesn't say for they might, for perhaps they will. It says they will. These are promises. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So last week we went through the first couple. I'm going to quickly recap and I would encourage you to listen to last week for a more in-depth explanation. We said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.3 We said people who are poor in spirit are those who are humble before God. They realize they have nothing in this life they can contribute to receiving the kingdom of heaven. They don't have arrogance or self-righteousness or self-sufficiency. And we said it's significant that this beatitude is first because it is known as the doorway into all the other beatitudes. So if the beatitudes are the foundation for Jesus' greatest teaching, 
and the first beatitude is the doorway to the other beatitudes, then, and again, this is why we spent so much time on this, on this notion, on this idea. Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because the opposite of being poor in spirit, the opposite of that humility is pride. And pride is rooted in the refusal to accept, to embrace the poverty of spirit. Most most human sin is the result of pride. It's the result of saying, in these areas you're right, God, but in these other areas I'm right. Or I think I know better than you. The significant sins in our lives are the result of us first saying, I'm going to reject you, God. I'm going to rebel against you, God. And we might not say that you know, out loud, but that's what we're saying in our heart. Adam and Eve were saying, you know what, Lord, we know that you've given us everything, but we, you might be withholding something. You know, we believe the lies of the enemy. And I've said before, I've preached on this a whole bunch of times, the strategy of the enemy has never changed. It's never changed. It's, it's in the garden. You can see it. That's the playbook. It's never been anything different than the enemy suggesting to you that God is withholding or that is something, there is something better apart from what he offers. That's the root of all sin. Is us going, oh yeah, okay, that may be the case. And we've preached about this before. And Paul says, you know, how can you, you, we understand when the world believes that. That makes sense. But Paul's saying, how can you possibly believe that the God who sent his son to die would withhold any good thing from you? Like, how, how can that be in your head? Because we're sinful. Because it, we're easily enticed into the old way of thinking. Because that's why Paul says, stand firm them and don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. You've been set free. Don't go back into bondage. But we believe the enemies of the lie that somehow, and that's why I keep saying that the best definition of sin is it's, it's, a, it's a cheap substitute for something better that God has for you. Because your desires and your longing, we're going to get into this when we get to the hunger and thirst, God wants to fulfill those things. The question is, do you trust Him enough to know that His ways are better than our ways? So it's very significant, this, this humility, this poverty of spirit, the opposite of that is pride. And pride will continue to destroy you. The Bible says God opposes the proud. So how can you possibly begin to walk in the things of God if in your very first you know, exchange, your very first posture of your heart where God's asking you, Jesus is saying, be humble, have a, 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 be poor in spirit, you're saying, no, I'm going to be prideful. I've said before, you know, when, when I do different things, that I can always work with somebody teachable. Ability's nice and ability's good, but you can impart in ability. ability. I would much rather have somebody who's teachable, who has a hunger and thirst, who wants to learn, than somebody who has all the ability in the world and they think they have all the ability in the world. And if you've ever, you know, been a boss or if you've ever had people working with you or for you, you understand that. Teachable. Humble. We are all students of the Word of God. We're all students of Jesus. Some of us are, have more time in that journey than others, but we're all students of the, of the Word of God. That's the authority. So the first step to embrace this poverty of spirit is to confess that by ourselves we can do nothing. That we must seek to live our lives in total dependence on God to supply all our needs. That, like I said, we don't exhaust our own options and then turn to God, but we turn to God first. That be the priority. We need to look at our own humility, the depth of our faith, our prayer life. 
And these things should lead us to increasing trust and obedience. I'm going to say that again. We need to examine our hearts to look at our own humility, to look at the depth of our faith, to examine our prayer life. Because the goal of these things is to increase our trust and our obedience. In John 14, 15, Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commands. Jesus is not saying that obedience comes first. Obedience comes as a result or an overflow of our love for him. But Jesus is saying that, that's where the rubber meets the road. Because love, we think it's a feeling and a thought and a sentiment. Oh, I, I love, we say I love ice cream and we say I love Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you do love me, that means you're going to obey what I told you to, to, to do. Because that means you're going to understand what it means to depend on me. That means instead of being filled with pride, you're going to be filled with poverty of spirit. So this isn't primarily a call to obedience. Jesus isn't saying, look, all I care about is that you do the right thing, that you're obedient, that you, that you follow the rules. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you love me and you trust me, if you really trust me, not words, but if you really trust me, then you're going to understand and acknowledge that it ties into it as a human father. I always relate it to this. I want what's best for my kids, and I'm, and I'm human, and I'm flawed. I don't even have a perfect love in that sense. But I understand what it means to want the absolute best for my children, to be willing to give up my own life for them to have a better one. And God is perfect, and he did that. And so for us to question, Jesus is saying, if you really say you love me, you're going to obey me. We, we, I think we focus like the Pharisees did on the obedience piece and we neglect the love. They're not mutually exclusive, but our obedience comes as a result of our love. And then the second one is, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And we said Jesus offers blessing to those who first mourn over their own brokenness. That word for mourning is, is a, a lamentation. It's, it indicates a feeling of deep sorrow. And so Jesus is inviting us into an honest assessment of our heart and of our condition. And we said last week that from that assessment, desperation should arise in our heart, but the desperation should simply be to be extreme in our pursuit of God. The desperation in our heart should lead us to an extreme pursuit of God. When we enter into this type of mourning, we'll desire breakthrough. We said last week we're not going to be inhibited by what others think of us. We will be focused on breakthrough, on entering into the presence of God no matter what because we know only there will we find strength and peace and courage. While the first posture of our heart should be mourning over our own heart, Jesus also invites us, we said, to mourn over the condition of the lost. And so we left off with the third beatitude. And again, it's important to realize that they build off one another. That this poverty of spirit will lead us into mourning for our own condition and the condition of others. And when we get to that place, our lives should be formed and shaped in a way that we're considerate and concerned with the lost. And so blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In Matthew 5, 5, as I mentioned last week, the best definition I've ever heard for meekness is restrained strength. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not inability. 
Meekness and humility have an incredibly high value to Jesus. And it's strategically located in the list of the Beatitudes. After first emphasizing poverty of spirit and mourning over our condition, mourning over those who are lost, Jesus then exhorts us into meekness. That we might carry whatever we receive from the Spirit with a posture of humility. Again, these kingdom values build off each other. This is why Paul tells us in Galatians 5, he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And he's talking about these things being developed in our life. And they're not fruits of the Spirit. They're not mutually exclusive and separate. They are fruit of the Spirit. They are descriptions of the character of people who are after the heart of God. And it's interesting that Paul has to say, after he talks to us about these things being developed in our lives, in verse 25, Galatians 5, 25, he says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And then in verse 26 he says, Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. It's telling that Paul, in his teaching of, of spiritual maturity, has to say, Oh yeah, and by the way, when these things are being made manifest in your life, don't use them to show everybody how spiritual you are, or don't use them to compare yourself to other people, or don't, use, don't look at other people's spirituality and, and, and want that, or, or covet their spiritual maturity. Don't become conceited. Don't envy others. Don't provoke others. Why does he have to say that? Because unfortunately, oftentimes, the longer somebody becomes a Christian, the more like the Pharisees and the less like Jesus they become. If our focus is exclusively on knowledge for the sake of knowledge instead of knowledge for the sake of a deepening relationship, we know a lot. You know, I think it was A.W. Tozer who said, the devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. Paul's warning us what Jesus is saying that we, we should have a posture of meekness. We should have a posture of, of being aware what other people need and how other people see us and living. Whenever you're given a spiritual gift, it's never for you. Your spiritual gift is never for you. Your spiritual gift is always given for the church, for the body of Christ, always. And if we think our spiritual gifts are for us, we've entirely missed it. Our tendency is to, in our spirituality, raise ourselves up and look down on others. God responds to poverty of spirit and mourning, and meekness is required to then steward what we receive. This particular beatitude is also a quote of Psalm 37, beginning in verse 9. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in an abundance of peace. You see, as Christians, it's essential that we live and minister from a servant spirit. You know, some of these giant men of the faith, men like Packer, they did not see themselves as great men of God. They were committed to the body of Christ. They saw themselves as servants of the church. The many pastors and theologians and apologists, these men that we often, often consider to be great, they saw themselves as little men, the good ones. 
with meager contributions to the kingdom, yet serving a mighty and faithful God. They saw themselves as standing on the, on the backs of those who came before them. They didn't see themselves as, look at me and my, you know, my, my ministry is all about me. No, my ministry is about ministering to the body of Christ. It's about building up others. These are the characteristics that matter to God and leaders. God chooses His leaders from among the meek and the gentle. And He is looking for those that intentionally use their privilege and authority to serve others rather than increase their own agenda or their position or their comfort. You've heard me say before that the fundamental difference between good and bad people is why they seek and how they use power. I was watching a show this week. It was a... Uh, it was a um, it was a documentary, and it was all about America's billionaires, how they use their money and power, and how they seep, seek to shape culture and support their pet causes. And on, in one way, we all do this. I mean, we all, everybody gives money to the causes they believe in and, and puts their effort. And so there's, there's, no, uh, there's no different in that sense. But this is a much larger scale, because these men have the ability to, to shape cultures, and it just reminded me that from the beginning, men have sought to build empires unto themselves since day one. We want to be kings. And so people will use money and power and manipulation, and when all else fails, they'll use force. But there's only one true king, and I was reminded of this quote by Napoleon, who said this about Jesus. He said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, some of the greatest you know, conquerors, greatest, uh, uh, most powerful men in history. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this very hour, untold millions of men would lay down their lives for him. Matthew 20, verse 26 Yet it should not be so among you. Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. You see, meekness is primarily about how we carry our hearts before God. When we carry our hearts before God properly in the spirit of meekness, then the tendency is we will carry our hearts properly before men. Meekness is rooted in a right perspective of God and a confidence in His judgments and in His rewards. Genesis 18.25 Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It's giving it to Him. In order to walk in meekness and gentleness, we must have an understanding of how much we have been forgiven. And then as a result, we treat others with kindness and gentleness because God treated us with kindness and gentleness. You know, when we wrong somebody, we want forgiveness, we want grace, we want mercy. But when we're wronged, often the cry is for justice. We want justice. We're wronged. We get all righteous, but when we wrong somebody else, oh please, you know, forgive me. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus who made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He humbled himself 
and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, Philippians 2, verse 5 through 9. How can we claim to follow Jesus, God in the flesh, who humbled himself to the point of death when we stand up and we cry for our own rights, for what we deserve. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. To hunger and thirst for righteousness includes, but it's more than just personal holiness. As with Abraham and Moses and David and Daniel and Jeremiah, it's those who mourn over a nation's sin, over its oppression, and it's a desire to see righteousness and justice in the land. Proverbs 14 says, righteousness exalts a nation. So Jesus is inviting us into a heart posture of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Now we know the words hunger and thirst, they're life-long pursuits of nourishment. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, it means we consider it critical to our survival. Just like we hunger and thirst in the physical, and it's beyond just optional. We don't have a choice. The hunger and the thirst are indicators of a great need. And what Jesus is saying here is we should have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. This is also not optional. If we have hearts after God, this, this should be an indicator in us of an essential need, not something that's optional. Again, the Beatitudes, they're not hard to understand. We can teach through them. They're hard to live. They're hard to apply. But I think we would all do well to, in, again, in our devotion time this week, in the coming weeks, however long we preach through this, just, just you know, pause your devotion. You want to read Oswald Chambers, whatever stuff you're reading that. But your biblical reading, pause it and just sit in the Beatitudes. Just pray and meditate over these Beatitudes and really, really self-assess. Ask the Lord to show you, are these, are these in my heart, in my life, are these things real to me? We persist in our desire and our pursuit of God for wholeheartedness regardless of the obstacles or the trials or the pressures or the disappointments in life. Yes, I would like comfort. And yes, I would like, you know, all these other things that, that I seek after. I don't, I don't go out looking for difficulty. But when it comes, do I, when it comes, do I trust God? Do I say, and again, we've, we've said this before, the principle, you can find it in Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Lord, take this cup from me. Lord, change the circumstance. But then the second part of his prayer, but if not, your will be done. And we love the first part. We love the Lord, change my circumstance. Lord, be with me. Lord, change this. Make this go away. But we have a real tough time with the second part. But if not, your will be done. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we mean what God wants, the will of God, the things of God, the way He's working in the universe. It might not necessarily benefit us for the moment, but He's at work. He's going to work it all out for good. Are we only interested in our own self-interests? Therefore, we persist. Prayer and fasting. Jesus says, when you fast. It doesn't say if you fast. It says when you fast. He's assuming it's just part of our spiritual lives. The concept nowadays, you know, we look at fasting as like this old spiritual discipline. 
Because the idea of us giving up anything for any amount of time is, just seems so foreign to us. I mean, it's all about accumulating and getting and, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins and all that. But I think people are seeing more and more and you see it, you know, we go from one extreme to the other. We like, we get a lot of stuff and now you see with a tiny house and people are like, I'm going to sell everything I have. I don't want any possessions. So we go, we go all over the place. Why? Because we're, we're not satisfied. We're not satisfied if we have a lot. We're not satisfied if we have a little. We're not satisfied without Jesus. Our hunger and thirst has to be for him. Or it's going to be for a whole bunch of other stuff, and most of that stuff will kill us. If not physically, absolutely spiritually. But again, we believe the lies of the enemy. God doesn't want what's best for you. God's trying to withhold good things from you. And so we live with one foot in the world and one foot in our relationship with Jesus. The word here used for filled indicates satisfaction and abundance. In other words, God will release abundant righteousness to us, but the door to that abundance is hunger. I'm going to say that again. God will release abundant righteousness to us, but the door for that abundance is hunger. How much will you persist in your pursuit of God? Does it compare at all in the way you persist in your pursuit of everything else? And the word used here for hunger is not mild hunger. It's a word that means deep hunger. It's related to famine, exhaustion, persistent hunger. We've been watching the series alone. It's a great show, by the way. It's like one of the shows we can all watch, the whole family. But they put these people in the middle of an island. They only have their own camera. There's not a camera crew. There's nobody. Ten people, and they're all in these different places. And they have to try and survive by themselves. They have to just do it all on their own. And and the main thing that takes them out, if it's not the mental part, it's the hunger. They can't get enough food. They, you know, they go days without eating, and you can see it. You can see it in their face. They begin to be disoriented. It's that kind of a hunger. It's a deep pursuit. It's not like, oh, I didn't eat, you know, I didn't eat today, or oh, I skipped breakfast. You know, Becky wanted me to look up. She's like, if you're heavier and you go without eating like that, because it said you sought to eat yourself. I think she was, she was going to put me and not feed me for a while and see if I would begin to eat myself. See that? Yeah. They're looking up online how, many peop- how long people can survive without food. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't make me shut this show off. But seriously, this, is, this, this word of hunger, it means, it means all you can think about is food. Nothing else. You need it. It's, 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 the, it's the focus of all your waking thoughts. Every moment, it's the acknowledgement of, I have to eat. I have to eat. What am I going to do? I need food. That's the word that's being used here. Hunger and thirst are the fundamental appetites of life. And Jesus is saying, our longing for righteousness should be our primary appetite as a Christian. And for those that embrace this appetite, he promises that they will be fully satisfied. However, deep hunger is required to be fully satisfied. What are you hungry for? We must desire him as deeply as the need to eat or drink in order to receive fullness. I want to go through one more. I know it's hot. I want to go through one more and then I'll have the worship team come up. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Matthew 5, 7. Jesus is promising mercy to those who show mercy to others. This, you don't need to go to, a, you know, to the Greek. You don't need a commentary. You don't need to see what the great early church fathers thought. This is clear. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You want mercy? Everybody wants mercy. Do you give mercy? Are you known as somebody who is merciful? When we are not merciful, listen to me. When we are not merciful to others, it indicates that we lack understanding of the mercy we have received. How can you possibly, how can you possibly be the recipient of what Jesus paid for for you on the cross? Suffered and died a brutal death for you to be free from sin and from eternal separation from God. You did nothing. He did everything. You and I were entirely undeserving. How can we now after having been shown that much mercy, not extend that mercy to other people in our lives. You know, I, I, situation I'm in, I wanted, I, I wanted to not forgive. It's true. And you know, we can start to think of all the reasons that we shouldn't forgive somebody, all the reasons we don't want to release somebody for forgiveness, so we don't want to be merciful. They don't deserve it. I've been merciful before. And we can go through this list. And we can talk to the people. You know the people that will co-sign whatever you say, no matter how bad it is. You call them when you want the wrong advice. Oh, they did this and they did that. And they're like, yeah, well, I, you're right. You should, you know. We can do that. But if we have the Spirit of God in us, even when we do that, we know. We know deep down inside. We should be asking Jesus for advice. And we know. And I'll tell you what. <laughs> I didn't want to be merciful. I felt like I had exhausted my mercy. But when you sit alone with Jesus, he has a way of just kind of wringing your heart, you know? Saying, you of all people, of all people, how can you not understand mercy? How dare you not extend forgiveness to somebody when all the people in your life have been examples of the forgiveness I've shown to you. I could have, you know, I could have argued with that. I could have sat in my, you know, my flesh for a few weeks. Because sometimes we do that. Sometimes we know what God's saying is right. And we know we're going to get around to it. But we feel that we, we deserve, we, we should at least have that. You know, I deserve to be angry for at least a few days. Don't let the sun, sun go down on your anger. Don't, don't allow that. You know, tomorrow's not promised. I know it's hard. Listen, I'm not sitting up, oh, I always get it right and this is easy. And no, we fight. We fight against God. But this is fundamental. This isn't, this isn't secondary stuff. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where it separates from those people who say they're a Christian and those people that are desperate in their pursuit of Jesus that want to say, Lord, whatever you say to me, I'm going to do. Like Jonathan Edwards, you know, I will follow Jesus and if nobody else does, I still will. Sometimes I'll follow Jesus if everybody I know does. Jesus expounds on this issue in the parable of the servant in Matthew 18, 21-35. The servant in deep debt received mercy from the master. But then he refused to show that same mercy to a servant that owed him a much smaller debt. A failure to be merciful is a failure to understand the heart of God. You can't understand the heart of God and not be merciful. You can't. 
You know, some of the, the best testimonies are when people have been wronged, in some cases in atrocious ways, people whose children have been murdered by somebody, and they're able to find that place where they forgive the perpetrator. That perpetrator doesn't deserve forgiveness. But when those testimonies, those things where you know in the flesh, I could never do that. And you're right, you couldn't. Those people couldn't either, but for God. When he brings people to a place where your action is a testimony and an example to the world. That we're not a slave to our feelings and emotions, but we should be a slave to the Spirit of God. God's own heart loves to forgive. I love this quote, I read it somewhere. God's heart is always bent toward mercy. Mankind's rebellion was aimed directly at the heart of God, and yet he releases mercy. And it's not only passive, but it's active. His mercy compels him to pursue the wicked. His desire for mercy drove him to the cross. The worship team can come up. Ezekiel 18.23 says, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? 1 Peter 4 eight, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Please stand with me. Lord, we come before you this morning with a, with a seriousness, with a heaviness in our hearts because these, these beatitudes tend to be like, like, like surgical instruments in our hearts. They, they penetrate deeply, Lord. There's no pretending. There's no superficiality. Lord, you are inviting us here into this place to go deeper. This week you invited me to go deeper and you are there in that place in the midst with us offering us strength and peace and joy. Not just in a way that those words are thrown around but a deep, abiding peace. You bring us to a place of full trust in you. Lord, I'm thankful that when you ask us a question and we quickly respond that you push us deeper that you ask for a thoughtful, prayerful response. And I pray right now in each person here in this room that you do that same thing. That as we close out this service and worship, that we would search our own hearts and we would ask if we have postures of humility, of mourning for our sin and the sin of others, for the lost, postures of meekness, of a consideration for others, God. Father, have your way in this place. We want to be salt and light. We want to be your ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation, the hope of the world. But Lord, your word tells us we can't begin to be those things until we learn to have a heart after the heart of God who's infinitely merciful with each one of us, God. So Lord, as we close, allow us to prayerfully consider what you're saying to each of us. Lord, we're so grateful for your word, your spirit, for this community.
for the body of Christ, for the many men and women who've served the body with their gifts that you've given them, God, and help us to see any gift, any ability we have in the same way, God, to use it to serve you that you may get all the glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.